Okay, let's see. I think this was their second or third LP. The Clancy Brothers. When I was a teenager growing up in Newfoundland, the sum total of anything I knew about Ireland and Irish history came from their records. Some guy, Kevin Barry and Roddy McCorley, whoever they were, I didn't know. The men of the West, the boys from County Cork, I didn't know who they were either. And I didn't really care. They, these were just songs. The names and places meant nothing to me. And the black and tans? Oh, yeah. At 17, I was learning about them. That was half Guinness, half pale ale, and a pint glass down at Ben's Pub. Right? About the same time, I fell head over heels for my first serious girlfriend. Her mother was Iris Power, and she had a weekly interview program on local radio. Here she is on an archival tape from around 1962. Well, General Tudor, I'm delighted to have the opportunity of coming in this afternoon and having such a nice cup of tea with you. Have you known Sir Winston Churchill long? Well, I've known him for a good many years. Iris probably recorded this for her radio program, a chat with a very elderly British Army general living in St. John's, General Tudor. I'd never heard of him. You were both young men then. Yes, he was... uh, Few Newfoundlanders had heard of him, even though he'd lived here half his life by that time. He'd lived in the shadows and scrupulously avoided publicity for years. And in fact, this may be the only recorded interview that Hugh Tudor ever gave. At the then age of 92, perhaps he felt he had nothing to lose at that point. What was Sir Winston like as a young man? He was very fresh-looking. It was through Iris that I met him. She decided it would be good for daughter and boyfriend to meet him while he was still alive. So I remember her taking us both up the stairs to his apartment in Churchill Park, St. John's. I suppose I shook his hand, but I don't really remember that. In fact, I don't recall anything at all about General Hugh Tudor. I was 17, at that age, with about as much interest in ancient British generals as I had in my parents' record collection. But I wish now that I had been interested and that I'd known about his activities in Ireland because there are questions I could have asked him about the killings, the burnings, the machine gunning of a football crowd in Croke Park, his whole command of the police and the infamous black and tans in the 1920s. I wish that Iris had asked him some of those questions in her interview, but she didn't. She asked only about his friendship with Churchill. Even when he spontaneously mentioned Brigadier General Frank Crozier, a fellow army commander who publicly condemned his murderous tactics in Ireland, she didn't pursue it. So it wasn't all a play with Sir Winston in those early days? Perhaps it was a precondition of the interview that no questions would be asked about Tudor's time in Ireland, for none were. And a couple of years after I met him, he went to his grave, a mystery man, in Newfoundland anyway. So let me see if I hear that record differently now. And let me try a little belated detective work to unravel some of the mystery of that shadowy figure I shook hands with half a century ago and how he wound up in Churchill Park Apartments in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's a murder mystery, the ones his troops committed, his. And depending on who's doing the telling, 
This mystery story is historical fact. My father's generation would not have taken that lightly. Uh, he really was. He would have been the incarnation of evil. Or it's historical speculation. If it didn't happen, it should have. <laughs> Which is probably why the story goes around. Or even a complete historical fiction. Well, <laughs> fiction is often truer than uh, fact. Because <laughs> we can control all the variables. At first, Stride didn't think, or want to think, that the sounds he heard were gunshots. Circular Road was a quiet, tree-lined street, government house and the colonial building, nominal seat of the Newfoundland government, not far away. Gunshots were out of place in this neighborhood. But Detective Inspector Eric Stride had heard a lot of gunfire in his lifetime. I'm Tom Curran. And I'm the author of the Inspector Stride mystery series set in Newfoundland, post-war, 1947. He put in a quick call to constabulary headquarters at Fort Townsend and then retrieved the Colt revolver from his bedroom. He threw on a raincoat and ran downstairs, heading for Bannerman Park. The idea of the book, um, well, it was an obituary for Hugh Tudor, a gentleman of whom I had not really heard read the uh, obituary and thought, God, this is all very interesting. There's all this rich history in them. So I took all this and started to write a novel which involved a retired British Army officer who came to Newfoundland, and uh, I took it from there. When he reached the sidewalk, he made a quick survey of the street, but his main focus was directed towards the park. He set off on a fast trot in that direction, angling over to the south side of the street. His colt in his right hand, all the time on his guard, in case someone with a gun should suddenly appear. Eric Stride, Inspector Eric Stride, well, he's obviously a figment of my sometimes fevered imagination. Uh, he's an inspector with the Newfoundland Constabulary, and he owns a house on Circular Road. And as it turns out, that's also the street where General Tudor lived, at number 22 Circular Road. So uh, Stride is there. He hears the gunshots and runs out of his house to investigate. He reached the eastern end of the park in less than a minute, came to a halt, and looked around. Then he began moving ahead again, slowly, scanning the area, straining to see through the dark and the rain. I tried to be as historically accurate as I could be in uh, the little I knew about Tudor's background, and Tudor remained something of a shadowy character. Minutes later, Stride came upon the body of a man lying on the ground. The man was lying on his back, but tilted to the left, his right arm draped across his torso. Stride turned the man's head and saw on the left side the small entrance wound of a bullet, so neatly circumscribed that it seemed impossible that it could have produced the large amount of blood that ran down over his chin and over his clothing. The rain continued to fall. Hello. Hello. How are you? Come right in. I couldn't find all that much, but... Um... In St. John's today, hardly anyone who knew him is still around. 
I was just going to show you. I think I have a picture of him. Um, yes, there he is. That's where he lived, you know, with Major Barr on Circular Road. Yes, he was out there for a while. He lived there with my great aunts for a little while, and then he moved out to Churchill Park. That's really was his last place. He was a very handsome man when you come to look at him. This is his book. Yes, that was written by him, The Fog of War. Oh, it's inscribed. Mm. It's inscribed to you. That's right, yeah. To Carla with love from Hugh Tudor. That's right. Well, say he knew me from a little thing, you know. But I had to do the uh, some of the arranging about, you know, when he died. They phoned me to tell me that he'd gone, and so uh, I had to arrange. But he got all his funeral and everything paid for. All I had to do was phone Oaks. I don't know if you remember Oaks Funeral Home. Well, that's where he was waked. And this was his funeral. He had a real sort of military funeral. That was down, of course, in the Anglican Cemetery. He was uh, very much, um, gosh, very aristocratic, actually, and very, very straight and very correct. But... Um, and what are these? Oh, that's the knuckle uh, dusties. But he had those because there was a price on his head. He never knew when he was going to be attacked. And so he sort of wore those under his gloves. Brass knuckles, yeah. Put your fingers through them and uh, just clasp the way you hold it there with your hand. And as far as I know, that's the way you hold them. I don't know if the thumb goes through here. I don't think so. The knuckles here, you see, would go right uh, and you clasp them in your hand and give someone a good punch with them. If I were to get you here, you know, you'd, you'd know all about it. If uh, did it any harder, you know, I'd go through the table. So he used to walk around with that, you see, so if anyone attacked him, he he would be able to use them. He never wore them when I was around, <laughs> so he couldn't have been afraid of me. <laughs> Butcher continued his probing of the body. Stride focused a flashlight beam to assist him. And after a few minutes, the doctor stood up and took out his cigarette case and lighted it. Three wounds, Butcher said. Three wounds. Two in the chest, plus the head wound. I think any of the three might have been enough to kill him. The head wound, certainly. I didn't know him personally, but I do know who he is. He's English, but I think he's lived here for a long time. Someone told me he had a military background. British Army, I think, but don't quote me on that. Stride borrowed another cigarette. What do you think of it, Thomas? I've never seen anything like this before, not in St. John's. A man takes three well-directed bullets from a semi-automatic in the middle of a public park, the fatal shot looking like a coup de grace. No, I haven't seen anything like this before either. I know it's odd, given the hour and the weather, but I wonder if he was meeting someone here this evening. Like the man who shot him. Or a woman. Or perhaps he was in the habit of taking walks late at night. Rain or no rain, and someone had uh, paid attention. And was waiting for him when he walked through the park. That would seem to be one possibility. Stride watched as Butcher made his way back across the park in the direction of Circular Road. He took a long, final drag on his cigarette, and then pinched off the end and placed the butt in the pocket of his oilskin. 
This was a crime scene, after all. My name is Michael Boyle, and I'm originally from uh, County Derry in Northern Ireland, and I settled in St. John's. Now, back to your question, uh, why did it come to Newfoundland? From my research, Tudor had a fine military record in, in World War I, and, uh, and, and that's how he came in contact with folks in the Newfoundland Regiment. He, he was commander of the Newfoundland Regiment, I think, from about 1917, so he, he, he obviously got to know the Newfoundlanders, uh, and, of course, that leads to the question... When he came to Newfoundland, what was the relationship of the regiment to setting him up here, and was there protection from him? And I think probably there was some kind initially, early on in the early days. Was he keeping his head down? Yes, I, I think he was keeping his head down. He didn't sign any documents. He didn't, uh, for example, at the officers' club at the Crow's Nest, he never signed his name there. Uh, there are very, very few photographs. But at the same time, he, 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 you know, he didn't change his name. But he had a very, very quiet, quiet life. Uh, and of course, I mean, uh, I, I, I've heard stories that Tudor had a knuckle duster when he was walking downtown St. John's. And uh, he also, I, I was able to trace here that he had a, a, a permit here for uh, a Wilkinson Webley uh, .55. Yes, uh, application to register firearm. And it's re Sir Hugh Tudor, uh, KCB, CB, CMG. And it's a description of a firearm, and it's a, a Wilkinson Webley, Class B. It's a caliber .455 and has a serial number 128074. And the number of shots is six, the length is six inches, and the op occupation of the applicant as Major General British Army retired. And the purpose of the firearm required self-defense. Meanwhile, in the detective fiction of this story, Inspector Eric Stride is making progress. I know the man who was killed. How? We haven't released the name yet. He was one of my clients. We got together a couple of times a month. We ended up having a kind of a friendship. How much did you know about him? You did know he was in the army. Mm -hmm. Did he talk about that? Not very much. I think it was something that bothered him. Did he say why? No, but he had bad memories, and sometimes he didn't sleep well. She caught his expression. I don't often sleep with clients. He was an exception. He often had nightmares. Sometimes he would wake me up with his shouting. And he never said what it was about. He said it had to do with the war, but that's all he would say. Do you have a cigarette? I left mine at home, and I really need one right now. He gave her one and held out his lighter. There is one other thing. I almost forgot. Does the name Crozier mean anything to you? Crozier. I've heard the name before, but it doesn't mean anything special. Someone he knew? It's one of those names he said once or twice, on a couple of those nights when he couldn't sleep. I remembered it because I'd never heard it before, or since, for that matter. And it was just the name he said? Nothing else? I asked him once who this Crozier was, 
but all he would say was that it was someone he'd served with once. I think I should be on my way. Stride took her coat from the closet and helped her on with it. She picked up her umbrella, opened the door, and stepped out onto the landing. And if I think of anything else, I'll be in touch, Eric. Stride watched as she went carefully down the stairs, her high heels clacking on the linoleum. When she got to the bottom, she pulled the door open, turned, and waved. Through the open door, he could see that it was raining again. On the other side of the Atlantic, the old man that I met in Churchill Park Apartments is remembered, too, every April, in the churchyard at Scarroth, near Fecal, near Killaloo, East Clare, in the west of Ireland. Good morning to everyone, and you're all very welcome to our annual commemoration, our commemoration in memory of the... Scarif Martyrs, and uh, we're delighted to be here again to remember our past. This is the 90th anniversary of our Scarif Martyrs, and in honour of those members are four great martyrs, Michael Brod McMahon, Alfie Rogers, Martin Gilday, and Michael Egan. We're going to say a decade of the rosary in memory of those four brave martyrs. I have the Father, I have the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are some of the other things that stand out in your memory about Sir Winston, General Tudor? When did you meet him? Well, I met him later, of course, in the European War. On one occasion, had arranged for what we call the strafe of a certain strong point in the German lines. And I decided to go down to the front trench. And I told Winston, and he said he'd like to come too, and I'd warned him that we'd probably get a certain amount of shelling. We had rather a warm time. Our big howitzer landed two shells on the parapet where we were a few feet away. We moved along the trench, and I went hurriedly to warn the battery to lengthen their range. But afterwards, his response was rather characteristic. He wrote a longish letter about it. Give me that letter. My dear Hugh, thank you so much for your letter. It was, in fact, the only specimen of representative frontline bombardment that I had the chance to see. I don't think I should have enjoyed it if it had gone on for eight hours instead of one. However, it stopped with agreeable punctuality. It's very impressive. Is that recorded now? Let perpetual light shine upon him and let the rest in peace. As we gather here to commemorate the memories of the people of East Clare Old IRA Brigade and the people that fought for the freedom of our country, it is important that we remember the past and remember those people. Hugh Tudor was a leader 
of the Chief of Police of the Auxiliaries of the Black and Tans back here 90 years ago and was the guy that was in charge of all those tragedies and those murders and those atrocities and he went into exile after it all over to Newfoundland. Hugh Tudor, he was best known as Black Hugh Tudor. People look back in the past and they say, so that was in the past. But people should remember, it's not too long ago, we were under the forces of the Crown. And those people that were brutally murdered on the bridge of Killaloo fought for our freedom. And a man that was here 90 years ago, he's going to lay the reed here today, John Michael Tobin, at 99 years of age, he's over here. And we'll now call on John Michael Tobin from Lackaroo Fecal to lay the wreath at the grave of the Scarif Martin. Uh, my name is Coogan, Tim Pat Coogan. Um, Tudor was a friend of Winston Churchill's. Their friendship seems to have gone back to the Boer War. And he was clever enough to put on a tremendous artillery barrage on the Western Front during the First World War when Churchill was visiting the front. And um, that impressed him. So when the Anglo-Irish War was going badly for the British, they brought in these ex-British soldiers to uh, act in support of the police force whom the IRA were wiping out. They came in 1920. Two classes of new force. One was the Black and Tans, and the other was the Auxiliary Cadets, as they were called. They were ex-officers. They left a trail of destruction behind them and they used torture and assassination. They weren't too particular about who they killed. They had death squads, undercover death squads, and uh, they were responsible for a lot of atrocities, burnings of whole villages, like the town of Balbriggan, that they sacked it. It was, it was military reprisal, masquerading as police activity. It, it, even their name, Black and Tans, tells you something about the way they were formed. They were formed in a hurry. There weren't proper uniforms for them, so they had, um, I think it was an RIC trousers and a khaki soldier's tunic. Anyway, it was black and, and tan, and there was a famous Irish hunting pack called the Black and Tans, so they were called Black and Tans after that. And of course the Irish joke was that the, the four-legged hounds were preferable to the two-legged ones. And Tudor was the actual uh, boss of the Black and Tan operation out of that um, strategy. You said earlier, for your father's generation, he was the incarnation of evil. How much blood did he have on his hands? Well, he had as much blood, no more and no less, as Winston Churchill, Lloyd George, the other members of the cabinet. Mm. Uh, he undertook an undercover military operation. If it worked, he was a hero. And if it didn't, uh, he took the can. I mean, as you know, he had to live in virtually incognito most of his life. He fetched up in Newfoundland because it wasn't deemed safe for him anywhere in the British Empire. We turned up here about, um, gosh, I suppose the 1920s. Well, he came here because um, originally, you see, he led the Black and Tans in Ireland, and of course, and England then, uh, once they got back, I suppose they were afraid of the Irish coming over and making trouble, I don't know. And uh, the government had made sure he was sent out, of Newfoundland, out to Newfoundland, away from England. 
But anyway, he um, came out here and uh, made a home for himself out here. Did he ever talk about his time in Ireland? No. Not to me, anyway. Hmm. I think it was Monsignor McDermott wouldn't shake hands with him on New Year's Day. So. Oh, yeah? Oh, no. Monsignor McDermott was Irish. He was one of the Monsignors up in the Basilica. But he had nothing really against the Irish. It wasn't that. It was that the army sent him there. And when you were in the army, you went where you were sent. And he was told to leave the blackened hands out there. And that's what he did. He just obeyed the army rules. He lived very quietly. And um, his family, he was separated from his wife. And his family were all over there. And uh, apparently they... Uh, the daughter told me, I knew Helen later, and uh, she said, well, they lived in fear of the people, the Irish coming over and mobbing them, you know, killing them. So I think they were quite relieved to have him out of the way too. But none of them came out for his funeral. My parents separated not long after the war. The first war, I mean. They eventually divorced. Stride took a chair by the table and opened his notebook. You knew that your father served with the Newfoundland Regiment for a time during the war? Yes. She didn't look very much like her late father. She was taller than him by a good four inches. I knew that. He guessed that she took after her mother. One of the things we don't know about your father is what he did after the war. Can you help us with that? It isn't a great secret. Although I'm not sure he would have talked about it very much afterwards. He was in Ireland. During the Troubles? Yes. With the army? Not exactly. He was with the auxiliaries. Do you know anything about them? It took Stride a moment to register what she'd said and to realize the possible implication for the investigation, the possibility that the IRA might be involved in the murder. They developed a reputation for extra brutality. In the end, their commanding officer... General Crozier resigned his position because he could no longer support what was going on. General Crozier? Yes. Do you know the name? It came up earlier, but I didn't know the context until now. What was your father's part in all that? Do you know anything about his time there? He never told me anything about it. But he was there, and he was one of them. There's a man who called himself General Crozier who written a book full of lies and slanders about the black and tan period in Ireland, obviously a pot boiler, written with the knowledge that a book full of lurid details would, would sell like hot cakes. He was thoroughly impecunious, and it wasn't worthwhile bringing a suit against him, but a well-known writer called Desmond McCarthy happened to quote from his book, and I promptly issued a writ for libel. And luckily, Winston Churchill entertained us both, both me and Desmond McCarthy, at Churchill Manor. And I was able to explain to McCarthy what sort of man Crozier was, and, and quote to him from the character which I obtained from the War Office. The result was he published in a leading London paper a withdrawal of his statement and an apology for having issued it. During your visit to Sir Winston, General Judy, 
Did you notice any of his hobbies that he's famed for? Was he doing any painting then? Does what I've told you about my father's being in Ireland during the rebellion mean something? You seem to have a reaction when I mentioned it. It might. You're thinking the IRA might have been involved in this? In my father's death? A revenge killing for what he did in Ireland years ago? It's something we'll have to think about now. I'm Robin McGraw. I'm a writer from St. John's, Newfoundland. I'm Paul O'Neill, and I have a hobby, which is history in Newfoundland. Did he have many friends here? He had been one of the leaders of the Newfoundland Regiment. He was one of the British officers who, who led the regiment in the First World War. And the story was that Hugh Tudor was one of the few decisive leaders that they had, that the British officers were, you know, changing their minds all the time, giving orders, rescinding orders, uh, waffling on absolutely everything. But Hugh Tudor was, was a man who had a lot of experience, and he knew what he wanted. And whether what he wanted was right or wrong didn't matter nearly so much as the fact that when he gave an order, you kept the order, and things didn't change. You knew exactly what you were dealing with. And because of that, he was one of the few of the British officers that the Newfoundlanders really respected. And apparently, after all his difficulties with the black and tans and so on, when he basically became kind of a persona non grata elsewhere, they uh, were said to have pledged allegiance to him, the veterans, and that they promised to protect him, and that as long as he was in Newfoundland, he was safe. And so that's why he came here. Now, I'm sure there were personal reasons as well. Presumably his family life had in some way crash-landed. You know, he didn't, he didn't have any friends, except here. What would have been his reception when he walked down the street? Oh, nobody knew him. Most people hadn't a clue who he was or what he'd done. When he first came over, he, uh, he lived with George Barr, and that's who he worked for, for the Bonavista Salt Fish Company or something like that, and lived on Circular Road. He never came to our house, I don't know why, because Mother knew him quite well. And uh, George Barr used to call her and say, look, Josephine, I have to have some people in for dinner. And of course, he had a big table. They'd have about 15 or 16 people at a time. And he said, uh, would you organize it for me? And she said, sure. Is your, your mother? Yeah. And uh, one night she came home and she said, uh, I had a lovely night last night. She said the dinner was just the way I wanted it. And she said, uh, I even went upstairs and got the old major down and danced with him. And my little brother, he's a feisty little thing. He's a year and a half younger than me. And he said, Mom, you danced with that old Tudor? He said, you traitor. Look what he did in Ireland. Because <laughs> we used to hear this from Dad, you see that he uh, was in charge of the Black and Tans in Ireland, that they killed as many Irish as they could. So anyway, having been called a traitor by her son, I guess she thought twice about what she was doing, because I don't think she ever did another party. My older sisters remembered Hugh Tudor quite well, and I do actually remember driving down Bonaventure Avenue with my older sister Elizabeth, who was almost 20 years older than me, and she was telling me about how the only time that she ever knew that Who Tudor was sort of called to answer for himself in public was when he applied to the Ballyhaley Golf Club, and he was blackballed by my uncle, uh, Jim Conroy. And that would have been, well, Jim Conroy died in 1933, so it would have been prior to that. 
I was told, and I don't know if it's true, on certain occasions, maybe it was Paddy's Day or something, I don't know, but apparently at least once a year he made a point of dressing in his uniform and walking down through the cribbies where all the poor Irish live down where the, uh, where the uh, city hall is now. And he would walk down the street daring them to take a shot at him. And the most that ever happened was apparently the, the women used to go and dump the night soil buckets over him. Over in Scariff and Killaloo, it's not night soil, but songs. Well, I'm Mick Scanlon, and uh, I'm from the, the locality, from the town of Killaloo, Clareman. So um, all these things were all taught to us, and we were told about them in school. And you'd go home and you'd ask questions about them. Sometimes people would answer you and they'd tell you more. Other times you'd meet a wall of silence. Mm-hmm. and You know, you know, you know when not to, to pursue anything. But um, I like the song. So we'll try. Oh, come gather round and a tale I'll tell of murdered martyrs of four who fell for love of Ireland and love of you. On a bloodstained bridgeway at Killaloo. Yeah, well, we're right in the middle of the bridge of Killaloo, standing in front of the monument that marks the spot where the four Scarif Martyrs were murdered on the November 16th, 1920. They were taken in a lorry up here to the edge of the bridge on the Ballina side and the Superior side of the bridge of Killaloo. About halfway across the bridge, they were ordered out of the lorry and for the following hour, hour and a half, there are people, there was a priest on the Balaná side, there was a priest on the Killaloo side, both of whom heard the moans and cries which were, um, you know, punctuated by machine gun fire and by uh, revolver fire. You had somewhere between 50 and 100 members of the RIC Black and Tans and Auxiliaries who were strewn across this bridge. Wailing waters meet weeping skies To kill a load they were brought to die And kill a load by the Shannon side Know its greatest shame and the glorious pride the men were separated 20 yards apart and were summarily executed um, after being tortured, facing... Uh, well, my how cousins you? was on that. Is that right? Yeah. Who was that? Mike Egan is your Mike cousin. Mike Egan was the cousin right? of my, my, my grandfather, from Derry Bryan. Yeah. And what was your grandfather's name? Michael Canning. Michael Canning, from Derry Bryan. Derry Bryan. Very good. Cousin of the uh, Michael Egan. Yeah. Did you ever hear any tradition yourself in relation to what happened or... I did. Well, I heard about the, uh, the style of, the, well, the way they died. They were tied in the back of a lorry, as far as I know, with their heads hanging down and dragged across the bridge. Terrible episode in Irish history. McMahon, Rogers, Egan, Gilded. Their dust is one with their native clay. They were murdered. Uh, the autopsy documented the, the horrific nature of their deaths. 
and the funeral itself took place. Today at the commemoration that you attended, we had the very last person alive to have attended that funeral 90 years ago, John Michael Tobin, holding his mother's hand, he attended that funeral. And I suppose he's the last living connection to, to that funeral. But, but I suppose with the passing of time and with all of the other forces that, that, that influence people and young people, uh, maybe some people have forgotten uh, about the Scarif Martyrs and have forgotten about you know, what the forces under the, the responsibility of Hugh Tudor uh, did in this country. But um, I think it's important to preserve and perpetuate the memories of those people and the, the cause that they fought for. Let you hold them your liberty Pray that their souls Mirrors peacefully. Stride. Eric, it's Alex. How's it going? The investigation? There's something else now. We have another body. How much can you tell me about it? Well, almost nothing at this point. The new body wouldn't happen to be Irish, would he? Just make an educated guess. As it happens, your guess is right, but that's one of the things we haven't sorted out yet. Well, either way, it brings us back to the IRA. And while there's a certain logic there, I have to wonder about it. The organization isn't anything like it used to be. It's not even a pale shadow of the crew that took on the British Empire back in the 20s. They've been reorganizing and rebuilding, but... Would this be a score they'd like to settle? Maybe. The scene that got played out in Benham and Perth Monday night... That looked a lot like some of what went on in Ireland in the 20s. But that was then, and this is now. And if the IRA's all but disappeared as a functional organization, what, where's the connection with what went on here Monday night? I don't know. The story was that two... Irish hitmen came out from the IRA to, uh, to assassinate him. And the night before they were to do the dirty deed, they went up to the basilica to make the confession, just in case things went wrong and they got killed. And apparently when they, they told the priest what their intentions were, he said that he was going to denounce them, break the seal of confession and denounce them because it wasn't a, a genuine confession anyway since they were planning to do murder. And uh, he told them that they had until the next morning to get out of town fast, or else the archbishop would be calling on the chief of police, and that would be the end of it. Hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, Father Mokler told me that uh, when he was a young priest, he was assigned to the uh, cathedral. It wasn't a basilica then, cathedral. He said that... He was in the palace one night, dining with the bishop and, and uh, Monsignor McDermott, and the doorbell rang. And uh, the woman came in, she said, there's a person at the door who wants to see a priest. And he said, look, Tommy, will you go out and see who it is? He said, uh, do whatever it is they want done. Well, when he went out, there were two fellows on the doorstep. And they said, we've come to see a priest in heavy Irish accents. And he said, I'm a priest. What is it you want to see? He said, I said, he had his collar off and he was just relaxed. And they said, uh, we've been sent out here f from Ireland uh, uh, to do a duty. 
to the IRA and we're, we're, we're starting to get very puzzled by it and we're, we're a bit afraid we might be going to commit sin. And so he said, what is the thing you're doing? And they said, we were sent out here to kill uh, General Tudor. He said, kill General Tudor? He said, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. Some months in McDermott came out and he said, uh, what's this I hear about you killing General Tudor? Well, well, that's what we're sent out here. But see, people here seem to like him, and, and we don't know quite what to do. He said, I'll tell you what to do. I've got no sympathy for what Hugh Tudor may have done in Ireland, but this is not Ireland. There's a ship down at the end of Cochrane Street, he said, that's going over to Liverpool tomorrow, and you go down and you get aboard that ship, and you take your problems back to Ireland, and don't bring them over here ever again. That's the way Tommy told it to me. And he said that the two disappeared. Well, there, there's about three or four different versions of that, and I can't say I agree with any of them. Being a Catholic myself, having been raised Catholic, I think it's because of my upbringing I cannot imagine a priest threatening to break the seal of confession. I've never heard of any example of it. I mean, I'm sure there had to have been under torture and things like that, but not under normal circumstances. On the other hand, uh, you know, it would have been under Archbishop Roach, and he was one tough cookie, too. You know, I sometimes think he was capable of almost anything, including, you know, assassinating Hugh Tudor if he'd chosen to. The priest that the two would-be assassins went to for confession, they wanted absolution. They were going to execute uh, an enemy of, uh, of Ireland's. They weren't committing a murder. It was a military act, and uh, they, wanted, they felt they could get absolution for this. And the priest uh, didn't want to send them out to kill anybody or uh, have them storming out of the confessional or turning against the church, as many physical force Republicans did. So we hit on the brilliant idea of discussing our plans for the operation, and he just chanced to ask them, well, uh, what's your plan for getting off the island? And they said, what island? <laughs> they didn't realize that Newfoundland was not part of the Canadian mainland. So uh, yet another assassination attempt on Tudor bit the dust. It's odd to me that, I mean, he, he comes over in 1925 or, or thereabouts, and um, gee, 25 years later, the IRA is still looking for him. Yeah. So they probably didn't have anything much to do. I said, we're being forgotten. Let's do something to get us back in the headlines. Well, we could kill that old fellow over in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not at all. That was two um, sort of overly patriotic Irish guys acting on, on their own volition. Nobody told them to do it. I mean, if, if a squad were sent over, they'd at least... No, I mean... No, that would have been a major op. And uh, the IRA in the 50s weren't geared for that. They were really directed at attacking the uh, northern state from south of the border. They certainly weren't strong enough to send people off after yesterday's enemy. Um, he lived here for almost 50 years mm. altogether. So you think that uh, if they were going to bump him off, they would have done it in the first few years? You would have thought so. Mm. Except that there's, you know, the, the Irish, you know, they always talk about the old Irish Alzheimer's where you forget everything but your grudges. <laughs> and maybe that's, that's what it was. 
I went to the cemetery records people and they said of course uh, to find the grave was 17D but it's not always accurate. Got past the first. What do you think of that story of the two Irish guys who came over to do him in? Well, I think the community, the Irish sort of Catholic community in, in Newfoundland, probably feel that the fact they lived here is kind of a black mark on them. It was there, and, and we give them an easy ride. Yet, what could we have done? You know, that's, that's a question. Well, maybe what we did was invent a story about two assassins coming over to bump him off. Well, there you have it. I think it was a story to uh, bolster up our self-image in terms of the Irish Catholic community in St. John to this time. Uh, that would be in my humble opinion. It's a widely believed story, uh, an apocryphal story that sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's a story and th that uh, that's all it is. It's a story, but uh, it's um, short of facts. And uh, it, I don't think it, it ever happened. And uh, it's a legend, it's fiction, and um, that's, that's what it is. It is what it is. That's what it is. Just look. Just look here. It's a kind of like a sandstone kind of uh, sh shine on it. Uh, Major General Sir Hugh H. Tudor, KCB, CB, CMG, and of course underneath it is 1871 to 1965. And that's all. There are no roses, there are no wreaths uh, on this particular uh, grave. So that would make him 95 when he died? Yes. Uh, and he died of old age, basically? Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Stride. Eric, Thomas Butcher. Thomas, anything new on the autopsy? That's why I'm calling. We just got the results of the fingerprint analysis. Late in the game, I know, but... Are you sitting down? Go on. The body. Actually, it is not General Hugh Tudor. What? No. Tudor, in fact, won't die until September 25th, 1965, in the Veterans Pavilion here in St. John's, of natural causes. What? At 95 years of age. Then, who is the body murdered in Bannerman Park in 1947? Someone very like Tudor, in fact. Fits a lot of the profile. Ex-British Army, dirty deeds in Ireland, all that. Do you have a name? Harrison Rose. It seems he's a fictional character. Fictional? Yes, in a mystery novel by Thomas Curran. You're telling me that Hugh Tudor was not assassinated? The real Hugh Tudor? No, he wasn't. He dies quietly in his bed in 1965. Uh, look, you probably need a little time to sit with this. I won't bring the report up to headquarters until after lunch. We'll talk then. Stride stood up and closed the door to his office. He went back to his desk, opened the bottom drawer, and took out the bottle he kept there for moments like this. He poured himself two fingers. No, three fingers. He lit a cigarette and stared at the window. He noticed outside it was raining Again. Are there any other anecdotes or memories that you might like, you, you could tell us about? 
think of anything much more. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, General Tudor. It's been a most informative interview. Tell them how the IRA made you run like hell away From the green and lovely lanes in Kilachandra The day is coming fast and the time is here at last When each yawning will be cast aside before us And if there be a need, sure my kids will sing God's feed With a verse or two of Stephen Bean's chorus